Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. This December marks 80 years since the attack on Pearl Harbor. Following Japan's bombing, the U.S. government forcibly removed 120,000 people of Japanese descent from their homes, uprooting from the lives they built and stripping them of their civil rights. The aftermath led to a national movement for reparations. Forty years ago this fall, Chicago played a key role in those efforts. More than 100 Japanese Americans in the Midwest gathered for a hearing at Northeastern Illinois University to share their wartime experiences, many for the first time. A new interactive web curriculum highlights the experiences and endeavors of the Japanese American redress movement in Chicago and explores lessons that they hold for the fight for racial justice today. The project is called Reckoning. Catherine Nagasawa is the lead producer, and she joins us now. She's also a former digital and audience engagement producer at WBEZ and for WBEZ's Curious City. Later, we'll speak with Bill Yoshino, former Midwest Regional Director for the Japanese American Citizens League, or J-A-C-L. He participated in interviews and helped with archival research for the project. And for Kat Nagasawa, bringing this global story home meant a lot. So when I was planning the project, I knew that I really wanted to localize the story as much as possible. I think a thread that often gets overlooked in the national story um, is just how important a role the Midwest community played in organizing and lobbying for the Civil Liberties Act. The Midwest had many more votes in Congress than the West Coast. So getting Midwest representatives on board for redress was really crucial to the movement. As for my research project, I I think there are several books written about the national movement or even efforts in cities like Seattle or L.A., but a lot of the Chicago redress story is really tucked away in personal archives and in the archives of a couple of local organizations. So I just started by sifting through all the documents I could get my hands on, news clippings, letters, handwritten notes, etc., And I also relied heavily on movement leaders who are still around today, like Bill Yoshino, who really spearheaded redress efforts in the Midwest. Bill, what's your connection to Japanese-American incarceration? I have a personal connection. First of all, my parents were living in Seattle at the time of the uh, forced removal. And so they were affected by the executive order, which caused that. And then the other part of it is that I worked as you mentioned, for the Japanese American Citizens League. In fact, I was hired just months before the organization made the decision to proceed with what it called its redress movement. And as a result of that, I became involved in part because I pushed to be part of that effort at the time because I knew it would be very, very important. And it was something I just simply wanted to be involved in. Well, several people shared their stories for the project, and it was really powerful to watch those videos and to actually hear directly from them. Here's a little bit from Ross Hirano. He was born and raised in one of the concentration camps. His family resettled to Chicago's South Side after the war, but it wasn't until he went to a JACL convention when he was 19 that he finally connected the dots about his upbringing. My first reaction was, wow, now I understand why I have a picture of me as a baby in front of a tar paper shack. Now I understand about the scars on my uncle's back. Uh, Now I understand about the funeral I attended uh, in Nebraska of my uncle being buried there. 
I understood all that. And it really was eye-opening. And as when I was coming back to Chicago, started thinking about that, and I started getting more angry, saying, gee, why didn't somebody do something about this? Wow, interesting. Bill, what was your reaction when you first heard what Ross had to share? Oh, it kind of brought me back to that time. I think Ross is a third-generation Japanese-American, and I'm the same. And we came of age during the 1960s, during a a time when the civil rights movement was uh, at its peak. And so I think a lot of us were motivated in part by that. And we saw the effort to work on this redress campaign as really an extension of the civil rights movement. What about you, Kat? Your thoughts? Yeah, I feel like Ross's clip really just emphasizes to me how hidden and suppressed the incarceration story was for so many decades, not just for like the general public, but also the kids, the people who experienced it firsthand. It kind of reminds me of my own mom because I remember she told me she thought my grandma had gone to a Japanese-American summer camp the whole time because my grandma never went into detail about her experience uh, when my mom was a kid. So I feel like that process of breaking the silence around that history was really crucial for something like the redress movement to take off. Did she ever discover why your grandmother wanted to remain silent on that? I think my grandma still is, you know, pretty quiet around her experience. She doesn't like to talk about it a lot, um, even in her 90s. It's been a little difficult to have her open up. Well, Bill, as we mentioned earlier, Chicago played a major role in gaining redress for the Japanese-American community. And you helped lead that movement starting in the late 70s. So tell us more about those efforts and what your end goal was. Well, first of all, the redress movement was an effort to really appeal to the government to admit a massive wrongdoing that occurred during World War II on a group of its citizens and permanent residents. And so the effort, which was later encompassed in congressional legislation, was to find a remedy for that. In terms of the result, we were looking for the government actually to admit to a wrongdoing as well to provide an appropriate remedy to those who had been harmed by the government action during World War II. The road to reparations for Japanese Americans was a very long journey. And uh, several movements formed that each took a different approach to redress and reparations. Kat, what did you learn about these movements in your research? So there were three main organizations that led efforts around redress. Reckoning mostly focuses on two of them that had a presence in Chicago. Um, The first being the Japanese American Citizens League, which Bill worked for. Um, He already described a bit about their legislative approach. But the second organization was called the National Council for Japanese American Redress, or NCJAR. That one was led by a man named Bill Horry out of Holy Covenant United Methodist Church in Lakeview. And NCJAR didn't agree with the legislative approach because they felt it was too soft and that it was insulting to ask Japanese Americans to you know, have to prove that there was a wrong committed against them. So NCJAR ended up filing a $27 billion class action lawsuit demanding reparations for the constitutional violations. And that lawsuit was ultimately unsuccessful, but, you know, it did make its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also resulted in a lot of groundbreaking research around the incarceration. Well, these movements, they laid the groundwork for Japanese Americans to share their stories with the nation. 
Bill, you fought for Chicago to be added to the list of scheduled hearings across the country in 1981. I want to play a bit from Monica Sone's testimony at Northeastern Illinois University. When I was herded into camp and saw the barbed wire enclosures and the guns, I lost hope. My citizenship had meant nothing. There was no secure future for us in America. Even as we were sitting in the camp, economic interest groups and the racists were demanding that we be, at the end of the war, we be put on the ships and sent to Japan. Better still, sink the ships. Bill, take us back to that time. What was it like to be there in the room? You know, the basis for this entire redress movement and then the hearings that came about as a result of the establishment of this federal commission were all about the stories, the individual stories, such as Monica Stone's. This was a situation where you had individuals who were affected by what had occurred to them, forced from their homes, the loss of property, the loss of personal effects, not to mention the denial of liberty and the denial of personal freedoms. But all of these things, I think, were very important in terms of trying to understand what had occurred to a group of people as a result of basically a racist government action in 1942. And it was very, very important to really get that story out there, not just so that the members of Congress, for example, would become educated about it, but really because this whole episode of the Japanese-American experience as Kat had mentioned, had been hidden in our history. It's a story that had really never been told up until that point. And so we felt it was very important that the uh, hearing approach, it was important for that to be established. Well, Kat, you mentioned in Reckoning that the Chicago chapter of JACL hosted these workshops for people to practice delivering their testimonies. What were the workshops like? Yeah, so the JCL wanted to prepare witnesses for the actual hearings. A lot of these people were in their 60s, 70s, uh, some of them in their 80s, and this was the first time they were really speaking openly about really traumatic experiences from their youth. And so one of those practice workshop organizers, a woman named Chie Tomihiro, she said that a lot of the witnesses completely broke down during these practice interviews. And, you know, she herself actually broke down and got really emotional hearing the stories for the first time. So it seems like there was a lot of suppressed pain and trauma that was released during those practice sessions. Well, back to you, Bill. The different groups that we talked about earlier, they ultimately worked together to get the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 passed. What did this legislation do and what did it mean to you and and the other members of the Japanese-American community? The Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which was signed by uh, President Reagan, called for an apology you know, from the president on behalf of the people of the United States. It provided for individual compensation of $20,000 for those who were impacted by the Executive Order 9066, and it also established a uh, trust fund, an educational trust fund. So that, I think, is one level of it. I think the other level is how that act when it was passed, impacted the the community. I remember I was privileged to be able to attend that signing ceremony in Washington. And when I came back to Chicago, one of the very first things that I was able to do was that I was invited to a a gathering of a group of second-generation Nisei Japanese-Americans, 
those who were, you know, truly impacted along with their parents, the first generation, because they kind of wanted to know, you know, what that ceremony was all about, what it was like. And the thing I remember was after, you know, about a 20 minutes or a half hour of describing what had taken place, I didn't get too much comment back, but I could just see in the faces of these individuals that they had been burdened for so many years, I think, with the trauma Mm -hmm. of the camps and that they had carried that with them for decades. And for Congress, the president, and for this country really to admit wrongdoing, I think in many ways just relieved them of this burden that they had been holding internally for all, all those years. And that was Bill Yoshino. He was instrumental in the local push for gaining redress for the Japanese-American community after World War II. Thank you for your time, Bill. Thank you. And I want to bring in another voice to the conversation. Joining us now is Emma Saito Lincoln, director of the Legacy Center at the Japanese-American Service Committee. Hi, Emma. Hi, thank you for having me. Emma, Reckoning is part of a larger grant project to collect oral histories and Preserve Chicago Japanese American history. How did this project come together and what's the mission behind it? Well, first, let me preface this by saying that I'm fairly new to the project myself. So, in many ways, I'm representing the efforts of those who came before me. But Reckoning is just one part of a multifaceted grant project that received funding and began really in 2018. And the main thrust of it was building out the oral history collections of both the Japanese American Service Committee, and the Chicago Japanese American Historical Society, and they were our collaborative partner in this project. And to understand the genesis of the project, we have to reach even earlier to 2017 when the Alphawood Gallery here in Chicago hosted an exhibit called Then They Came For Me. Mm -hmm. It was focused on the incarceration history. And as an outgrowth of that exhibit, Alphawood hosted an oral history studio And a woman named Anna Takata was the interviewer for most of those interviews. She worked at Alphawood and recorded nearly 100 interviews during that time. And when that exhibit came to a close and Anna's work at Alphawood came to a close, the timing just worked out, I believe, that JASC, in collaboration with CJAHS, was able to propose a continuation of that project, and it would shift from Alphawood to the Japanese American Service Committee. So Anna and all the interviews came here and continued that work under the funding of this new grant. So that was like one of the grant. I see. The grant also enabled us to digitize pre-existing oral histories that were in the collections both here and at CJAHS. It enabled us to transcribe a number of those interviews, which is a crucial step in the process that many people don't think about in our modern technological age. But until an interview has been transcribed, it isn't searchable. You can't do full text searching across audio recordings or video recordings. You have to have that written transcript in order for researchers to really make use of these interviews, which can often be an hour and a half to two hours long. And that's a lot of of labor-intensive work. So the grant helped fund part of that work. Right. Well, Kat notes in her project that there seems to be this recent surge of interest in documenting and sharing the community's history, specifically here in Chicago. What led to that, Emma? 
in some ways it feels new, but it isn't. I know many, many people have worked for many decades across the country and here in Chicago to preserve this history and to share this history. And I think the leaders in that area were in many ways the Chicago chapter of the JACL and the Chicago Japanese American Historical Society and my predecessors here at the Legacy Center at JASC. And all of those entities and the individuals involved worked tirelessly to collect and document this history. Sometimes that meant with oral history recordings, and sometimes that means providing a safe place for individuals and families and business entities to deposit their records so that we can have this incredible community-based archives that we enjoy today. So I don't think the work is new in that way, but I think what is new now is the way in which we can harness technology to really amplify the message and to take what has for years often been hidden away in dark storage areas of archives and really do what we call activating the archives. So bring these things out into the light, put them into the stream of information that people are consuming 24-7, 365 and share this information in ways that we couldn't before. I mean, Kat's work on Reckoning and its parallel exhibit, Uprooted, really showcases what we can do today with you know, what began as oral history interviews, then gets morphed into these incredible multimedia interactive experiences that are so much more engaging, particularly for students. Earlier this summer, Illinois became the first state to require schools to teach Asian American history by passing the TEACH Act. We've talked about it here on, on Reset. That stands for Teaching Equitable Asian American History. Kat, why is it important not only to preserve Japanese American history, but also to develop curriculum like Reckoning that can be taught in classrooms? Yeah, I think it's really exciting that Illinois is paving the way for Asian American history to just be considered a really essential part of any U.S. history course. I feel like for so long, the incarceration has been you know, just a paragraph or a footnote in history textbooks. Um, at least that's how I remember it from mine. And I think also the redress movement deserves our attention um, as one of the few successful pushes for reparations for historic wrong in all of U.S. history. So I think it carries a lot of lessons for us as we reckon with other histories of racial violence, like the legacy of slavery for African-Americans. Like Emma said, I think that collecting and preserving oral histories is super important in and of itself. But the goal I had with this project was to really build on those interviews to make a cohesive story that was interactive and engaging for students. I feel like nothing replaces hearing directly from somebody about their experience. I hope that reckoning is a conversational and personal approach to teaching history. It's beautifully done. You're also working on another project, Kat, called Uprooted. This one traces the effects of World War II incarceration on three Japanese-American families from the West Coast to Chicago. Why did you want to focus on this narrative? Yeah, so Uprooted is the companion piece to Reckoning, um, and it aims to tell a multi-generational story about Japanese-American incarceration and resettlement. Um, so I interviewed three generations in each of the families. Um, and I wanted to do this because, you know, I want students to understand that the incarceration experience didn't just affect the people that were actually in camp, uh, but it had, you know, trickling down effects to subsequent generations. And I hope that by tracing these family stories, students will think themselves how they were shaped by their parents' experiences and their grandparents' experiences, maybe that it would encourage them to learn more about their own family history. 
I'll give you the last word, Emma. What can students today learn from studying Japanese-American incarceration and the redress movement? I think, as Kat illustrates so beautifully in her two sites, Uprooted and Reckoning, there are so many parallels between what happened to the Japanese-American community during World War II and what they were able to achieve with the redress movement in the late 70s and 1980s and what's going on in our country today. And I think that's why these stories resonate so much um, and perhaps why it might feel like there's a a newfound energy in sharing these stories, right? They're, they connect with the social justice movement today. They connect with what we see happening on the borders, uh, particularly under our previous president. And I know many in the Japanese American community have been very engaged with fighting back against separation of minors from their families and incarceration of children at the borders. And mass incarceration. So, so many topics where there are clear parallels and a sense of obligation and duty within the Japanese American community to speak out about what happened to them and their parents and their grandparents and fight on behalf of other communities as well. And I also ought to have mentioned earlier when I was explaining what the whole grant project was about, with the funding for this grant actually came from a program called the Japanese American Confinement Sites Grant Program, which is run by the National Park Service, which is part of the U.S. Department of the Interior. And we were very grateful to receive that funding. And actually, the money that goes into that grant program comes from the set-aside that was part of the Civil Liberties Act in 1988. Well, that is Emma Saito-Lincoln with the Legacy Center at the Japanese American Service Committee. We've also been speaking with Catherine Nagasawa, lead producer of Reckoning and Uprooted. You can check out her latest project at reckoning.jasc-chicago.org. We'll also tweet out a link. Emma and Kat, thank you so much for your time today. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast and please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and we'll meet again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.